Welcome back. It's time again for reading through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. I hope you're doing well uh, this week, and I hope uh, you're having a a great, I guess this is going to be released on um, Memorial Day weekend, so I hope you have a good Memorial Day um, with your family or friends or whoever you're going to, if you're doing anything, I hope it goes well and you have a great time. And uh, yeah, so, but I hope you're still going to read the Bible through Memorial Day weekend and uh, through the week of, uh, this is uh, week, I think, 22. So we're going to be reading May 29th through June 4th. We're going to be starting the month of June. It's crazy. Uh, it's crazy. So um, we're going to read this week, Acts chapter 17 through Acts 21. We're in the midst of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke's history of Christ's work from heaven as he's working and ruling by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the word of God, spreading it across the Roman Empire, and uh, beginning his rule and his reign uh, by spreading the kingdom, the reign, the rulership of and influence of Jesus Christ into the hearts of and minds of men and women and boys and girls. So we're going to begin reading this week in Acts chapter 17. Before we go into there, we're going to do a little outline, of course. So we're still in the midst of Paul. He's been ministering in Greece uh, last time in Acts chapter 16. He's ministering in Philippi. He, he preaches. Remember, Lydia comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the jailer. And actually, both of their families, their households, for Lydia and for the Philippian jailer, they also become believers in Jesus Christ. Um, and the promise is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So the promise is not simply uh, for uh, individuals, but it's for everyone that they come into contact with in their family. So the promise spreads and converts people. But now, Paul, beginning in Acts chapter 17, is continuing his ministry in Greece. We're going to see him go to Thessalonica, uh, Berea, Athens, right? The great city of Athens, right? Which was a a famous intellectual city. He's going to preach in Corinth. And then eventually uh, in Acts chapter 18, verse 23 through 20, chapter 20, verse 35, kind of centers around Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Um, and so he comes, he uh, talks with uh, Pris you know, Priscilla and Aquila, we see uh, instruct Apollos. Paul talks to some guys who are disciples of John, and they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit yet. Um, Paul also encounters false religion uh, in in uh, Ephesus, and he has, you see, the eventually there's a great work of God that happens in Ephesus. People begin to repent and believe the gospel, getting and turning away from their old ways. And uh, then there's a, there's a big riot, a big um, uproar in Ephesus over the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then eventually Paul completes his ministry. He uh, goes in Greece, goes to Troas, uh, goes to Miletus, and eventually he's going to preach, uh, give a final uh, emotional message to these Ephesian elders in the latter part of chapter 20. Um, he's going to, in tw chapter 20, verses 17 through 35, he's going to uh, remind them one last time and get together with the church leaders, the elders, um, of this church and um, remind them one last time kind of 
give them a uh, uh, one last encouraging word and reminder and warning about how to shepherd the flock of God among them. And then lastly, he goes to Jerusalem, Paul does, he heads to Jerusalem, he takes a Nazarite vow before eventually he's arrested. And that kind of is going to play out the latter parts now of, of the book of Acts is Paul's arrest, which will eventually, at the very end of the book, bring Paul all the way to the city of Rome. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I've been helped here by the ESV Study Bible. Help has a little helpful outline um, uh, to kind of just break down the passages, right? And so here, remember, the gospel's going. It began in Jerusalem. It went to Judea. It went to Samaria. And now it's continuing to go to the ends of the earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading, growing continually progressing here in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is the ruler of the kings on the earth, and he is spreading his rule, his reign, through his authorized ambassadors, Paul and Silas, Barnabas, those guys. And so that's what's happening uh, this, this week. So Acts chapter 17, right? We open up, Paul goes to Thessalonica. He's preaching there, right? He preaches in the synagogues, continues to do his normal habit. His initial, his his normal practice was to go to the Jews first, to the synagogue. That was kind of a in, in some ways, it was a uh, it was a very pragmatic thing to do, but it was an open preaching station. And as a Jew, he believed. Paul did, and all of the apostles that they were simply continuing the old religion. That, be, that to believe in Jesus Christ was not something necessarily new. It was continuing the faith of the fathers from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. They were all looking forward to Jesus. And so Abraham and Peter and John and all those guys, they thought of themselves as the continuation of the remnant of true believers continuing the true Old Testament religion in their day. So Paul goes to the synagogue, preaches to these people, and we see, again, there's rejection. Um, uh, there's people that believe. There's some that don't. As we see, the gospel is a savor of life to some, but also a savor of death to others. It cuts and it divides people. Eventually, Paul goes to Berea, and we read about the noble Bereans. They search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And Paul seems, though, to be heading towards Athens, and he heads towards Athens. He's stirred up in his, in his heart because he comes to Athens, this great uh, intellectual center um, you know, with a lot of history, a lot of prestige, a lot of name recognition, right? And these are maybe the, this is a, a, an intellectual, sophisticated group of people. And yet, as I read, and I think it was William Arnaud, it's interesting to point out, Paul never writes a letter to the church at Athens, it's interesting how the gospel is received in Corinth and in Ephesus and Thessalonica, but it's not, and Paul writes epistles to those letter to those churches, doesn't he? But among the wise of the world, the gospel is foolish. Now, we do see some people that will believe eventually in, in Athens, but uh, to many, it's, it's foolishness. Well, Paul uh, is stirred up because he sees all of the gods around them in Athens. He's stirred up by this. He sees it, and he eventually uh, begins preaching the gospel and is invited to preach in the Oropagus, 
or Mars Hill, as it's called sometimes in, in certain translations. And he goes and preaches, and this is an opportunity for Paul now to uh, to give the gospel message, to proclaim to them what his beliefs are about the world, about God, and about who uh, Jesus Christ is. Because they say, you're bringing something strange to our ears. Tell us what you mean. Um, and so they're interested. So Paul comes into the Areopagus in verse 22 of chapter 17 and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, Paul is emphasizing here this this nearness of God to the Athenians, that even though they do not know him, and uh, even though they may not know his name and his person, they need to know that he's near them. And this is something that Horatius Bonar, that Scottish minister, hymn writer uh, from the 1800s, he has a work called Light and Truth, Bible Thoughts and Themes, and he has a section here just on that one verse, and the fact that God is, says, that Paul says he is not far from every one of us. And this he titles, God's Nearness to Man. Bonar writes, It is to the men of Athens that Paul is preaching. His sermon is about the one living and true God, and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. He proclaims to them the God whom they know not. He fills up the inscription on the altar to the unknown God with the name Jehovah. Of this, God has much to say, something that they knew not, something that they knew, something of which their philosophers and prophets knew a little, something of which they knew nothing, something of which they had faint glimpses, something of which they were in total darkness. He preaches God to Athens. He tells them more in a few minutes than Plato had done in all his life. On Mars Hill, he proclaims the sacred name Jehovah and Jesus. But he brings the matter closely home to them and makes them feel as if in contact with God, not with an idea, but with God. These idols, these altars, these statues, these temples, what are they all? It is him who is a spirit that Athens needs to know. Him who with all her fancied religion she knows not. Let us look, one, at the fact, and two, at the lessons from it. One, the fact, not far from every one of us. That means very near. I call this a fact or a state of things in actual existence. Not a truth merely, not a proposition nor a doctrine, but something more, something deeper. It is a truth that I am a sinner, but it is more. It is a fact. It is a truth that God sees me, but it is more. It is a fact. For God is not an abstraction, but a personality. God is not far from every one of us. He is nigh. He is as near as I am to myself, nearer than the outward world, 
nearer than friends, nearer than the sky which covers me or the ground I tread upon or the raiment I wear. He is around me, above me, underneath me. Not in the materialistic, pantheistic sense of all things being God, but as a living, personal God. The two personalities are distinct, that of man and that of God. In him I live and move and have my being. We see him not, hear him not, feel him not, but he is near for all that, just as if we saw him, heard him, felt him. His works are near, but he is nearer, so near as to hear me, see me, touch me, feel me, and compass me about. It is not merely said, he is our life, our motion, our existence, as if he were simply the fountainhead or mainspring of these. The apostles' words imply something far deeper and more intimate. In him we live and move and have our being. He is more necessary to our being than head or heart or organs or limbs. All this has been intensified by the Incarnation of the Eternal Word. To the lessons. These are very many. We take up but a few. They are all solemn, some of them blessed, some fearful. 1. How close the relationship between God and us. I speak of that natural relationship which results from from His being what He is and our being what we are. A relationship not affected by sin or rebellion on our part, nor by banishment and condemnation on His. Between the created and the uncreated, God and man, there subsists a necessary bond which cannot be broken, a bond to which the apostle calls the attention of these Athenians. All their idolatry and wickedness had not weakened this connection. They could not cease to be his property. They were still his offspring. In him they still lived and moved and had their being. What ties can be compared to this for closeness and indissoluble firmness? All earthly relationships in comparison with it are a mere thread. This is a chain of iron, and though invisible and impalpable, it is immeasurably the strongest of all bonds. God is not only nearest to us, but he is most closely related. Not that this relationship is saving. No, in the case of lost men and angels, it will be awfully condemning. Two, how important that the relationship be one of friendship. One so nearly related to us as God is must be, more, must be more to us, either for good or evil, than all the universe. He is the source of all blessing. He is infinitely able to bless us. He desires to bless us. How momentous, then, that there should be friendship between him and us. Yes, friendship between us and the great Father of Spirits. Friendship between us and him in whom we live and move and have our being. Friendship with others is nothing. Friendship with him is everything. Seeing he is so near to us and possessed of such power over us and in us, how needful that God and we should be at one. How essential to our well-being that this indissoluble tie should be one of happy friendship. We loving God and God loving us. Yes, how important both for body and for soul, both for time and for eternity. Three, how sad if there be estrangement. 
If God, as it were, retires from us, leaves us alone to our own resources, even without any positive infliction, how sad our case. What loneliness, what solitude, what utter endless dreariness without God. We often hear the complaint of being lonely and having no society, but how far short does anything of this sort experienced among ourselves come of that dismal solitude of the soul when God is away? Even granting that he does not go from us, yet if he does not smile, how lonely. Even if he does not speak words of anger, if he merely keeps silence, how sad for us. The silence of God, the absence of God, the distance of God. What infinite and unutterable solitude would that make for the soul? At present we can drown the sense of solitude in pleasure, gaiety, business, Soon this will be impossible, and then the sadness, the profound and eternal melancholy. Will not that be hell? For how terrible if there be wrath. The anger of a far distant enemy is nothing, but that of one as near as he is, mighty, is a fearful thing. The wrath of him whose offspring we are, in whom we live and move, how terrible. The nearness and authority over us which he has in connection of our, virtue of our connection makes that connection infinitely terrible if God be turned to be our enemy. Instead of eternal friendship, nothing but eternal enmity between us and the God who made us. No hiding from him in whom we live and move. No screen either of distance or rocks or mountains between us and him. What an eternal terror will he be to us. So near, so awfully near and our enemy our enemy forevermore. But fifthly, how blessed to enter into friendship with him now. He is ready to do this. He makes proposals to this effect. Acquaint thyself now with God. He has no pleasure in estrangement or anger. He seeks for reconciliation. He urges it, urges it now on each of you. Father, Son, and Spirit join in this urgency. Be reconciled, they say. Why refuse the friendship and the love and the blessedness? That connection with God, which you cannot shake off, would thus become the most blessed of all blessed relationships. The feeling that you are so near him would be one of the most blessed of all feelings. And then, being one, of the in, one with the incarnate Son would draw this union to get closer. You would be doubly near and thus doubly blessed. Oh, what an immeasurable source of gladness would this double relationship, this double nearness become to you. Make sure of it now. That's pretty helpful. That's very interesting because it's a helpful meditation upon how closely even unbelievers are to God, right? He is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. And he does a great job there of laying out the implications, the lessons that we can draw from the fact of how near each of us are to God. Um, first of all, he, he, you know, he highlights the closeness. And then he says, it's really important then if God is that close to us, that it be one of friendship and how sad it would be if we are not friends, but rather enemies of God. And then the wrath of God. Think of how close our enemy then is. But then if God is our friend in Jesus Christ, how wonderful that relationship must be. And that is what Paul is trying to press upon these, these Athenians. He's trying to press upon them their, their relationship that they do have with God. 
Um, now they have a bad relationship with God right now, but the fact that they do have one and he is near and he calls them back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. What Paul preaches there in Athens, um, we see the results of that. Some believe, many don't. And, and then Paul moves on to Corinth. He preaches there, and Paul has quite, a, quite the ministry in Corinth. And he'll write two letters to these, two letters that we have, I should say. Um, he writes more than that to the church at Corinth. He, he has a unique relationship with the church in Corinth, which has a lot of problems, but which Paul loves them as a father uh, loves his children. Well, Paul continues on through his ministry. He goes to Antioch, and then eventually we see uh, we're introduced to a ministry in Ephesus, um, where, where Apollos is there. He's preaching, uh, proclaiming the gospel. Paul shows up, meets these disciples, right, who had not heard about the Holy Spirit. They were disciples of John, and Paul proclaims to them about Jesus, and uh, they become uh, believers in Jesus Christ. We see about the sons of Sceva. These guys are going around and casting out demons and such, um, trying to use the name of Jesus. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the demons don't recognize them because um, they say, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Um, so they're going around. But then eventually we see what happens um, when people begin to hear um, and, and see the power of the gospel. Uh, we read in um, uh, verse 18, Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Mightily. The word of God continued to increase and prevail. And it's upon this really this wonderful work of God that happens in Ephesus, which will eventually bring about a great persecution and a big riot and uproar right after this in chapter 20 or in chapter 19. Um, in light of this, this fact, I want to read William Arnault now. That's the other Scottish guy, right? We're kind of quoting Scottish, uh, famous old Scottish preachers and pastors, but they've got some good stuff to say. And he has a section here on Acts 19, verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And this section is called the two dimensions, breadth and depth. He writes this about this work. Christianity was new in those days. The dew of its youth was on it. The experience of its disciples accordingly was fresh and tender. If their knowledge was less extensive than ours, their life was perhaps more vigorous and their love more warm. The faith of those ancient believers excelled in directness and simplicity. When it had less of human attainment, it had more of divine power. It is better to have a faith which you cannot explain than to be able to explain a faith which you do not enjoy. Here is a philosopher who understands thoroughly the circulation of the blood, but whose blood, through lack of vital vigor in the heart, is almost standing stagnant in his veins. And there is a little child whose blood bounds through his body like a mountain stream at every pulse, but who does not know that the blood is circulating in his veins. The philosopher would fain change places with the child. Give me at all hazards the spiritual life, and let me add a scientific theology if I can. 
It is better to believe in Christ to the saving of the soul, although you could not demonstrate the nature and origin of saving faith, than to possess the power of analyzing faith so as to resolve it into its elements, while you do not yourself believe to the saving of your soul. Faith in those days seems to have been simple and direct and strong, like life in childhood. Such was the experience of the Ethiopian treasurer. He thirsted for the redemption of Christ, as dry land thirsts for rain from heaven. On his thirsting soul, the water of life was poured from the scriptures through Philip's ministry. The thirsty traveler drank the living water and went on his way rejoicing. The instrument which these primitive preachers wielded was the word of God. They had no confidence in the enticing words of man's wisdom. In simple faith, they set forth him who is the word of life and looked to the Spirit for the quickening power. This method was successful. Great results immediately appeared. The terms employed to express these results are worthy of special attention. The word grew and prevailed. The work of these missionaries, like that of the husbandman, has two dimensions, breadth and depth. One measurement indicates the superficial extent of the field, and another the perpendicular depth of the furrow. The gospel, through the preaching of those ministers, reached a great multitude, and it penetrated the joints and marrow of each. The word is said to grow when it spreads widely in the world, and to prevail when it makes all things new in the heart and life of a believer. The word of the Lord grew. The mustard seed dropped into the ground, became a spreading tree. In the hands of Paul and his associates, it soon overshadowed the philosophy of Greece and the arms of Rome. For a long period during the Middle Ages, the word of the Lord did not, in this sense, grow. A very general corruption overlaid and choked the word in Europe, and the power of Muhammad quenched its light in vast regions of the East. By the way, Muhammad is Muhammad, talking about Islam. That's what he's referring to in the East, right? After the Reformation, the word brought up from its grave again lived and grew afresh. In our own day, it displays all the energy of its youth. Its way has been better prepared in recent times, and accordingly, it has reached many regions which the feet of the apostles never trod. The Lord reigneth. He has remembered Zion and is healing her breaches. He is building up the walls of his own Jerusalem. Children are playing again on her long, desolate streets. A good time has come, and a better time is coming. Those who have lived during the earlier half of the present century have seen great things, and those who live out the latter half will see greater. The word of the Lord prevailed. It put forth a power which penetrated every obstacle and bore its message home. A thing which is in its own nature beneficent may be widely diffused, and yet fail to confer a benefit for lack of power to penetrate. Sunlight in summer floods the polar regions in continuous day, and yet no grass grows green, no harvest field grows yellow under its beautiful beams. The light grows there into an immense diffusion, but does not prevail to melt the ice and fructify the soil. Times have passed over our own beloved country, in which the gospel was like the light of a polar summer, shining everywhere but melting nowhere. And the same phenomenon may be observed at present in some districts of Europe that are distinguished as Protestant. Men may be proud of Christianity and yet ashamed of Christ. Our lot has fallen in more pleasant places. We have obtained a better heritage. 
God has in mercy granted to his church a little reviving. Besides the growth of the word and its diffusion over the land and among the nations, there has been a prevailing of the word and the conviction and the conversion of sinners. May the kingdom come not in word only, but also in power. We have precious seed, and there are many sowers. It remains that we give heed to the ancient prophet's specific exhortation, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The form of the expression directs us to the preceding verses for an enumeration of the effects actually produced at that time by the preaching of the word. One, fear fell on them all. Both in the nature of the case and in the experience of the church, this result is first in order. The sense of need is an essential preparation for the reception of the remedy. The immediate means of producing fear are various. The earthquake that shook the prison first alarmed the jailer. The crowing of the cock was the spark that fell on Peter's heart and set it on fire. At one time it may be some external danger, and at another a still, small inner voice. But in all cases of conversion at first, or reviving afterwards, a fear springs in the conscience, and restrains the convicted to flee for refuge to the hope set before him. That fear is blessed, which, like the approach of the wolf, compels the wandering sheep to return to the fold. When heads are that heretofore were held high in pride begin to droop on sobbing breasts, when groanings which cannot be articulately uttered begin to rend the frame, as the thaw of spring rends the ice which span the river, when the pent-up agony of the inner man gathers itself up at last into the cry, What must I do to be saved? The fear is blessed, not for its own sake as a result, but for what it promises as a symptom. Two, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. This is a sure mark of a genuine and thorough spiritual progress. It is dangerous when a religious movement brings men's names into great prominence. It is true that those who preach with much success must endure a large measure of publicity. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, but neither the successful preacher nor his friends for him should court this distinction. Human hearts are in their own nature all too liable to spontaneous combustion. No wise man will do anything to fan the flame either in his own or his neighbor's breast. The preacher who on this occasion proclaimed the gospel with success has taught us by his own example to handle roughly this tendency to idolatrous adulation. I am of Paul, said one large and very evangelical section of Christians in a certain church, but this minister was not pleased to see his own name placarded in two large letters on the wall. I think I see him breaking forth like a tempest upon those two zealous admirers, extending his frame and raising his arm and knitting his brow, the fire flashing from his eyes as he spoke. He hurled at the obsequious partisans the piercing challenge. Was Paul crucified for you? Convicts and converts should enter their closets and shut the doors, and forgetting the preachers of the word, occupy themselves with the Christ whom they preached. When the stars grow bright, it is a proof that the sun is down. While the sun is shining, the stars, though still in their places, cannot be seen. Let Jesus be magnified, and all instruments will be lost in his light. Thirdly, many that believed came and showed their deeds. I assume that this confession of sin to men was the external accompaniment of confession in secret to the Lord. 
Confession of sin to one another is a suitable body, but if it be not animated by the living soul of confession to God, it is nothing but a carcass. They who believed confessed. They did not confess until they believed. You do not throw away one portion until you begin to get hold of a better. The prodigal, I suppose, kept his rags closely round his person as long as they continued his only covering. It is when he gets the fair robe from his father's hand that he casts the filthy garments passionately away. You will never show your own deeds and count them vile before God or man until you begin to see the way of pardon. When Christ forgives a soul, he gets that soul's secrets. When he gets a soul's secrets, he forgives that soul's sins. Fourthly, they who used curious arts brought their books and burned them. The converts on this occasion were of the baser sort. The apostle had disturbed a nest of fortune tellers and sorcerers that were burrowing under the shadow of Diana's temple and preying on the dissipated multitudes of Ephesus. Where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. To the poor the gospel is preached. The master received sinners. His servants followed his steps. The most damaged specimens of humanity will serve the Lord's purpose when they have been renewed into his own likeness. Manufacturers of paper do not reject the raw material because it is torn and filthy. These sorcerers who plied their disreputable trade in the precincts of a heathen temple will be beautiful when they are new creatures in Christ. How quickly the tree, when it is made good, brings forth its pleasant fruit. They gave up their trade and their stock and trade as soon as in the light of life they saw it to be sinful. Their right arm they resolutely cut off as soon as they perceived that it injures themselves and dishonors the Lord. Would that all the Pharisees of the modern church should, in this respect, follow the footsteps of these publicans and sinners as they entered the kingdom of heaven in sheep's clothing. Nope. You know what? I just read the wrong sentence there, last part, sheep's clothing. Yes. So the last part ends, would that all the Pharisees of the modern church should, in this respect, follow the footsteps of these publicans and sinners as they entered the kingdom of heaven. That is really good stuff, talking about those basic points about what we see when the word of God grows and prevails. There's a fear. The Lord Jesus is magnified. People uh, get rid of there and they burn their books, right? They, they get rid of them. They confess and they confess their practices and they change and repent. That is really a whole conversion there in Ephesus, isn't it? Um, it's really good because it shows how the word of God works in all of these things. It convicts us of our sin. It helps us to see the savior. It helps us then to confess our sins and to turn away from them. And that's what the word of God does. That's why we preach. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we share the word of God and proclaim it to each other and remind each other of what's in this book because this book is taken by the Holy Spirit. The words and the truths it contains are used to then turn and transform people, even these fortune tellers and these sorcerers, into new creatures in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul, after this wonderful work of God, then faces this uproar in Ephesus before eventually he uh, has to leave, right? Uh, But he still isn't done with the Ephesians. He will meet with the Ephesian elders in the next chapter. He travels um, and and keeps going and eventually comes to Troas where he preaches. Uh, This is where Eutychus um, uh, falls asleep during a sermon, falls out of the window, right? 
Um, but he's okay. Um, eventually they go to Miletus where eventually Paul, right? He wants to get to Jerusalem. We're told that he wants to get to Jerusalem. So he goes to Miletus and has the Ephesian elders, the leaders of that local church. And notice, by the way, there are elders that emphasizes to us that church leadership was never meant to be given to simply one man. It was meant to be shared, uh, in a collegial way because, we all need accountability, don't we? Um, Paul did not even go preach the gospel simply by himself. He always took somebody with him, right? He either had Barnabas the first time or Silas or Luke or Timothy. And similarly, these there was multiple leaders of this local church in Ephesus, the elders, plural, more than one, um, these overseers, these pastors, all to, there was multiple shepherds who were working together to take care of the flock of God. Um, so they go and they meet in Miletus and Paul there is going to preach to them and remind them of some things. And these actually, this is a beautiful, uh, message that Paul gives to these Ephesian elders. He reminds them that, you know, some, some, um, some of you, he reminds them to be faithful, but also reminds them and warns them that one day there will be wolves that will arise in sheep's clothing and uh, be careful, because some of them will even come from among you. And you need to be careful about that and deal with those bad shepherds. And the sad truth is, is that even today, we see men um, who uh, serve in, in the pastoral office or in church leadership who abuse that authority. And Paul said that this was going to happen. He foretold that it would happen in Acts chapter 20. And then he says, you need to take care of those guys. You need to deal with them. And later on, Paul would talk to Timothy about how to go about doing that. Um, if there are charges against uh, an elder or a pastor or an overseer and uh, tells them how to deal with that. And so we, we need to, we need to, uh, on the one hand, we, we don't want to, um, we want, don't want to necessarily always be looking, go searching for these things. But on the other hand, we need to be aware that they do happen. And we want to be ready as a church, as a congregation to remember um, that verse. Remember that verse, put no trust in princes. We should not put too much trust in men. We trust in God. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in the Holy Spirit. We trust, um, and we should have a general trust of our leaders and we should be able to, because they should be trustworthy men. But on the other hand, we should not put them so high that we think of them as infallible or beyond failing. And when they do fail, we need to be ready to deal with that. And that's also another reason why it's so important to have more than one to help hold each other accountable because we're all sinners and we all need each other to help hold each other accountable for this. But here eventually, in, as Paul is preaching and, and ministering to these men, uh, reminding them of their call to shepherd the flock of God, uh, one of the things he says here in verse 24, but I do not account myself, my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may f finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is from Horatius Bonar again. Uh, he talks about the role of ministers. Ministers witness. He says, ministers, witnesses of God's free love. Testifying to the grace of God is what he's basing it off of. So let's think about what a pastor should do. Um, 
what is the job of a pastor? He says this, first of all, what is a minister? He is a witness, as Paul here declares himself to be. So also Acts 26, 16, a minister and a witness, not a priest offering sacrifice and communicating between the sinner and God, not a ruler issuing commands, not a judge or lawgiver publishing laws and exacting penalties, not a schoolmaster with the rod in his hand and austerity in his face, but a witness coming from God to tell us of certain things which he knows to be assuredly true. He has good reason for knowing them to be true, the light of his eyes and the hearing of his ears, and he is sent of God to relate to us what he has seen and heard. It was this that the Lord meant when he said, Ye are witnesses of these things, Luke twenty four forty eight. It is to this that the Apostle John so strikingly refers, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. The first apostles were witnesses of what they themselves had seen and heard, and we are witnesses of what they saw and heard and have left on record for us. It is this that lays the foundation for faith. 2. What is the nature of his testimony? It is gospel or good news. It is not law, nor command, nor threatening, nor terror, but simply good news. These other things can come come in as arguments or warnings in connection with the reception or rejection of this gospel, but they are not the main thing, nor are they the proper and higher subjects of ministry. The minister of Christ is the bearer of glad tidings. This is his first office, his primary business. All the rest is subordinate to this. He is to be what the angel was to Mary and to the shepherds of Bethlehem, the teller of good news. He does not come from Sinai. He comes from Zion. He comes from Bethlehem. Three, what is this gospel of which he testifies? It is the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of God's free love to sinners. This is his message. God is love. God so loved the world. God is rich in mercy. The grace of our God is exceeding abundant. The Lord our God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, slow to wrath, abundant in goodness and truth. He comes from God to bear testimony to God. He comes to sinners to announce grace, time grace of God, or maybe it should be the, the grace of God, the free love of him whose wrath we had so terribly provoked. The gospel of grace sums itself up in these points. One, what God is. God is love. Fury is not in him. He is the God of all grace. His nature is love, and so is his name. This love is like himself, infinite, so that where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. Two, what God has given. He has given his son. This is the pledge and measure of his love. It is an unspeakable gift, the free gift of free love to sinners. It is not promised, but given. It is not held out for sale at a price, but presented by God to be received by us without condition or price or merit. Such is the grace of God. Three, what God has done. He has not only given his son, but delivered him up for us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. This is the Lord's doing and wondrous in our eyes. The Son of God, sent of the Father, has come, lived, died, been buried, risen. All is complete. Such is the grace of God. Fourthly, what God has provided. 
Fullness of every needed blessing is in Christ for us. Forgiveness, life, righteousness, reconciliation, peace, joy, wisdom, holiness, all in Christ. Such is the provision for sinners made by free love. And now we come to ask, how are we made sharers of this free love and its blessings? One, not by buying them. They are priceless and they are free. They would not be gifts and this grace would not be free love if all were not absolutely and unconditionally free. If in any part of the great transaction there was anything approaching to buying or selling. Two, not by deserving them. If it were so, grace would no more be grace. Desert, dessert is, an impo- is as impossible and as incongruous as purchase. Three, not by becoming fit for them. Our only fitness is our need, and that every sinner has already in the bare fact that he is a sinner. His fitness for pardon is that he is condemned, for life that he is dead, for grace that he is under wrath. Four, not by waiting for them. To speak of waiting is to speak of putting them away from us at present, to say that they are not at hand and that God is not willing to give them this moment. How then do we get them? By simply receiving them. And how do we receive them? By receiving the testimony concerning the good news. That is all. Be receivers, not rejectors of our testimony, and all things are yours. But let it be now. No more excuses or delays or hesitations. Not tomorrow, but today. For your danger is great, and the judge standeth before the door. I love Horatius Bonar. I love that rich gospel preaching that he brings to us in every single, these, these uh, things that he, his Bible themes and light. And I mean, you read that and you realize, wow, um, just so much wonderful emphasis uh, to remind me that God doesn't simply promise me Jesus, but he gives me Jesus. And I'll tell you what, whenever you're in the dark night of the soul, as some of the theologians have called that, and Christians have called about those dark nights of the soul, you need that kind of gospel preaching to you. That kind of pure, 100% unmixed gospel. I need that, and you need that too. Um, Yeah, uh, Horatius Bonar, great guy. Also wrote some great hymns. Maybe look into those. He's got some great hymns as well. All right, lastly here. Um, so Paul here is still preaching. And, and then later on in verse 35, he says this. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I want to close with this meditation on this verse because Paul here is reminding them about his ministry. And I think this is a good way to close uh, today. We won't talk about verse twenty, chapter twenty-one, um, but we will, uh, where Paul goes to Jerusalem and is arrested. But let's close with this section. He says this. This is from William Arnaud, by the way, William Arnaud from the Church in the House, and he titles this section "The Larger Blessing and the Less." This word of the Lord Jesus, like the great apostle who has reported it, is one born out of due time. 
It found no place in the evangelic histories. It lay silent in loving hearts or flowed in whispers from loving lips when the disciples met after their master had departed until, spoken by Paul on the seashore to the weeping elders of Ephesus, it was recorded by Luke, his companion, for the use of the church in all coming time. In another aspect, this word is like the man who quoted it at Miletus. If it, among the words of Christ, like Paul among his apostles, was late in coming, it is like him, not a whit behind the chief of them in preciousness and power, now that it has come. Luke reports the speech of Paul, and Paul's speech holds in its bosom a priceless fragment of the Redeemer's word. It is as when a seaman in a shipwreck has seized in his strong arms a servant of the family as she was sinking. And when she is raised, the spectators discover that she holds the infant son of the family living in her arms. Here then we have a word of Christ rescued from sinking into oblivion, a word of Christ with a word of Paul wrapped around it. The jewel and its setting, the kernel and its shell are both here. It is more blessed to give than to receive. These words were indeed employed by Paul as a practical maxim to stimulate and direct the Christians at Ephesus in their charitable contributions. But if you limit your view to that specific application, you will miss the deepest of their meaning. An untaught barbarian or an undeveloped child sees in the stars some small twinkling lights set in the blue canopy higher than the clouds that flit across its face. But you know more of their grandeur and of their maker's might when you look up on when you look upon them as central suns, with subject systems of their own, while they also act as lights to the darkened hemisphere of our earth. As the difference between the intrinsic greatness of the fixed stars and their incidental usefulness to this world at night is the difference between these words and their origin as the declared experience of God our Savior and these words and their application as a stimulant to liberality in Christian contributions. We must consider these words in the depth of their divine fountain and not confine our view to the particular stream that happens to flow from them here. Before we speak of the object to which the maxim is here applied, we must reverently look to the source whence it was taken. When our Redeemer said, it is more blessed to give than to receive, he expressed his own experience. This word of Christ is beyond conception precious, especially to the meek and poor afflicted ones among his disciples. When conscious of our own unworthiness, and especially of our backsliding, we tremble even before a throne of grace. It is sweet to learn that the giver of pardon takes pleasure in giving. He who loves a cheerful giver is a cheerful giver. A penitent may encourage his soul to come near in confidence, not only with the argument with which the spectators address to the blind man at Jericho, be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee, but with the much stronger reason, the cure of the disease will impart greater joy to the physician than to the patient. This word of Christ, rightly accepted, is enough to drive away all the dread of fearful souls, as wind drives smoke away. Forms of amazing elegance and beauty may be thrown off in millions by the hands of common workmen, but the one type whence all the specimens have derived their shape grew slowly, like the germs of life and the secret of a greater soul. So, off the experience of Emmanuel and his work of redemption, from its beginning in the eternal purpose till its finishing in the fullness of time, was this maxim taken, 
which Paul found useful to stimulate the liberality of the Ephesians, which we find useful to stimulate liberality amongst ourselves today. The love wherewith Christ loved us is the mold on which the practical rule was cast. Unless he had lived in the world, the world would never have possessed such a rule for the regulation of its course. This principle is not of the earth. It bears the mark of another origin. It at once reveals the character of its author and gives shape to the aspirations of his followers. It is a print of his footsteps, marked by the Spirit in the Word, to direct the way of his people through all time. This feature belongs indeed to the lessons of every true teacher who undertakes to mold into better forms the spirit and conduct of his neighbors. All apostles who have left a beneficent mark on the world have first practiced what they afterwards preached. In this respect, the apostle and high priest of our confession, of our profession, was made like unto his brethren. He lived this lesson first and taught it then. He tasted the blessedness of giving and thereafter told his disciples how sweet it is. The redemption which Christ accomplished and the gospel reveals is a system of giving and receiving. It consists of these two and of these two only. The whole transaction between the Savior and the, war- and the saved is comprehended in giving and getting. He gives, they get. This is the sum of the whole matter. Christ gives all and gets nothing. Christians get all and give nothing. The Lord Jesus speaks from experience when he explains how pleasant it is to give. He is entitled to speak on that point with authority. On that subject, he speaks what he knows. He has had much to do with giving, first and last. If there is sweetness in the act, he must have enjoyed that pleasure to the full. He gave himself for us. This is a gift unspeakable. We have no line wherewith we may measure its greatness. It is as when a child, little child looks down into the blue heavens mirrored in a, deep, in a still lake. The child exclaims, These skies are deep, deep, but how deep he cannot conceive, far less adequately express. Inconceivable to men and angels, infinite is the gift which our Redeemer bestowed when he offered himself to take sin away. The giver of himself knows what giving is and is entitled to speak with authority on the amount of blessedness involved in the act. Nor has the giving ceased now that he is exalted. He continues to dispense his bounties. When he ascended after his ministry on earth was done, it was for the express purpose of giving. He gives the spirit. He gives pardon and peace day by day to him that cometh. He gives grace in this life and glory in the next. On his part, it is all giving. His bounties are waters that fail not, and he is not weary in well-doing. When he was angry and faint at the well of Samaria, it was not the water from the woman's vessel or bread from the baskets carried by the twelve that refreshed him. I have meat to eat, he said, that ye know not of. And his meat was giving, giving to a needy sinner the gift of eternal life. This glimpse into the heart of our Redeemer is a salve that reaches to the deepest of all sores. Brother, when you begin really to know yourself, it is not easy to hope that it will be well with you in the great day. When you measure the deceit and corruption of your own heart 
you know that it will require a great deal of giving on the part of Christ to make you right. Perhaps you could hope more easily if your debt were smaller. You are afraid to expect that it will be all freely forgiven because it is so great. When you have looked a while into your own heart to see its emptiness and measure how much you need to receive, turn round and look a while into Jesus to learn how much he possesses, how much he bestows, and how much delight he takes in bestowing. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth, and the joy is expressly said to be like the joy that filled the shepherd's heart when he got his wanderer home again. The joy therefore is the joy of the Lord, which surrounding angels see gleaming in his face when he feels that virtue has gone out of him to save a sinner. Every time that from the depths of sin and misery on this world another draft is made upon his love, another throb of joy rebounds in the Redeemer's breast. Humble and contrite hearts that sigh and cry for the light of God's countenance should drink in great consolation from these words of the Lord Jesus. If giving were a pain to him, he would have long ago ceased to give. If he gave grudgingly, he would not give at all, for there is no constraint laid on him except the compulsion of his own unmerited love. When our Lord with his disciples made the journey from Judea to Galilee, it is written that he must needs go through Samaria. There was indeed a geographical necessity on the surface, for Samaria lay right across their path, but there was a deeper necessity a necessity compelling the Lord to make that journey at that time. It was his hunger for the meat that his fellow travelers knew not of, which then consumed him. The appetite for giving mercy and newness of life to a chief sinner in Sychar. He must go that way, for there lay the savory food that his soul desired. In his goings forth from eternity, he must go by this world, All these glorious worlds that are scattered over the infinite belong to him, but it is not necessary that he should dwell in any of them and take part of the nature of their inhabitants. These were not needing anything. These remained as God had made them, all very good. He would have enjoyed no giving there, and a sojourn there would not have been blessed to him. For this joy that was set before him, For this greater blessedness, the blessedness of giving, he came and companied with the the empty and the lost. Let us bear these words of the Lord Jesus on our hearts when we pray. To be assured that he counts it blessedness to give should greatly encourage us in asking. The words do not say and do not mean that it is unpleasant to receive. When the receiver is needy and the gift good and the giver generous, it is blessed to receive. Tell it, ye who have come to the Lord, wretched and miserable and blind and naked, and have received from him pardon and peace and eternal life. Tell it to his glory. Is it not a blessed experience to receive? Hark, they tell it who already stand round the throne in white clothing. Thou hast redeemed us and washed us from our sins in thy blood. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. These jubilant hosts who have passed in safety through the Red Sea are not givers. They are only receivers. They are rejoicing with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. But it is the joy of receiving that swells in their hearts and thrills through their frames. When when the Lord intimated that the blessedness of giving is greater, he did not intimate that the blessedness of receiving was small. 
He proclaims in one sentence the twofold truth, that the joy of his people in obtaining salvation is great, and his own in bestowing it is greater. There is an amazing affluence in the works of God, both in the covenant of his mercy and the creation of his hand. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the stars also, Genesis 1.16. After the chief lights were provided, he needed some smaller sparks to supplement the moon's rays and the work of diminishing the darkness of night on this world. For this purpose, he employed a multitude of glorious orbs, many of them mightier than the sun and all its system. It is thus in the covenant. God needs a motive to urge his people during their probation here to greater liberality in their charity, and for that purpose reveals the experience of his son in the work of redemption. He needed a lamp for our feet at a rough step on the journey, and lo, in order to obtain it, he draws aside the veil, rends the heavens, and displays to view the love and joy that burn in the bosom of God our Savior. No wonder that the ravished pilgrim forgets for a time the step on earth thus needs illumined, and gazes on the glory that sheds down the needed light. In a subordinate sense, the Lord's people also give to him, and he receives from them. He loves this receiving. Evidence that he delighted in the self-consecration of his disciples crops out everywhere in the evangelic histories. In the case of the woman who poured out the precious contents of the alabaster box to anoint his body for the burial, he gives unmistakable indications that he was much pleased with this lavish offering. In the case of the ten lepers, too, he does not conceal that he rejoiced in the thanksgiving of the grateful one and missed the acknowledgments of the selfish majority. It was kind in him to let us know that he values our gifts, although we render to him only what we have received. It would have thrown a discouraging damp over every grateful aspiration if he had left us to suppose that, not needing our our offerings to supply any lack, he was indifferent to all the loving gifts that loving hearts and hands might lay at his feet. Sometimes a little child is permitted to present a flower to the sovereign on occasion of a public procession. The sovereign takes real pleasure in the offering and the offerer. The sovereign's condescension is a mighty encouragement to the child. It is in some such way that disciples, who have attained to some measure of the little child's spirit, are encouraged to present their thank offerings by knowing that he loves to receive them. And now that he has gone beyond our reach, it is his own will that we should consider the poor as receivers for him. We have no Savior present to the senses on whose head we might pour our precious ointments now, but the poor we have always at hand, and the Master's command is that we should turn the ointment into cash, and with the proceeds, help our needy brother. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't, you don't read that kind of stuff very often today, do you? Um, that was really good. Um, Christianity is basically about giving and receiving. We get all, he gives all. And then he lets us uh, give a, a flower like a little child does to a king to show our gratitude. And he says also, why don't you show mercy to the poor? And so that's why Christianity is a beautiful religion, isn't it? It's so wonderful. Well, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this uh, as much as I have. Um, if nothing else, I get encouragement by reading this stuff. And um, I hope you're enjoying it. Keep reading through the New Testament. Next week, we'll be in Acts chapter 22. 
uh, going through, I believe, to chapter 26, our last full week next week in the book of Acts before we go from Acts into Romans. Thank you for listening. Take care and God bless.